0: here is certified health coach A. Gregory Luna with Confessions of an Obese Child. Hello everybody, this is A. Gregory Luna. You can call me Gregory, of course. And welcome back to another episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. I'm glad that you came back to listen to another episode. But before we begin, let's just get down to business. You can find me at naturopathicearth.com, N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H-I-C, earth.com. There you can find the written confessions, at least the first 22 of them. In addition to all the podcasts, the Naturopathic Earth podcast and Kate's Apothecary podcast. Speaking of Kate, she renamed her podcast from Naturopathic Essentials to Kate's Apothecary, a guide to essential oils and herbs for the everyday person. And uh, she can explain to you why she changed the name. But if you're interested in aromatherapy and herbalism, check out her podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this podcast, or you can go to the website and listen to it there. I'm currently out of country. I'm recording this in the beautiful country that is Canada. And as I always joke about Canada, it's like a cleaner, safer, less diverse country country than the United States, version of the United States. But I'm currently in British Columbia. I'm on Vancouver Island, if any of you know anything about Canada. It's a large island that's uh, off the coast of British Columbia. And it's north of Washington State. And it is beautiful here. I've been here a few times in my life, but um, I'm just overlooking the inlet of one of the the many islands in the Strait of Georgia. There's just a, a bunch of islands that are north of Washington State between seattle and vancouver and i'm just looking at the water right now recording this so currently in texas it's like hundred degrees so any excuse to get out of summer texas to go where the high is like seventy degrees um, is definitely an incentive and we've been very fortunate uh... we were over here in seattle too we've had sunny weather the first few days in seattle is very sunny now it's kind of cloudy over here on vancouver island near victoria but. Uh, Seattle. Seattle is an interesting town. I I you know, I think coming from and if any of you live in the middle middle America or in Texas like I do, you take you take advantage of uh, the space that we have. You know, going to Seattle and I hadn't been here in twenty years. Everything is, is so tiny. The roads are tiny, the streets are not wide, parking is at a premium, everything you have to pay for parking, you could literally go to a Thai restaurant and there's no parking the, the Thai restaurant doesn't have a parking lot. Okay. You have to park in the next the lot next to it, which is a private parking lot. So you got to pay 6 $7 for parking, or you can try to park on the street. And I know a lot of towns in the downtown area are like this. But I drove through much of Seattle. Much of Seattle is like this. It's just inhabited by these, these for-profit parking lots. And, of course, it's clever for the businesses because they can make a lot of money, right? You buy this land, and then you just charge parking for it. But I just found that to be interesting. It's a very hilly town, so even though a place might be three miles away, it might take you 20, 20 minutes because of, of the fact that you can't drive that fast. And uh, I found that interesting. And, and you know, one, one of the impressions when you go to the Pacific Northwest, it's like, ah, oh, this place is beautiful, I wanna move here. But then the longer you stay at a place, you realize that it's not as great as you think. The scenery here is outrageous. I don't think there's any part of the country that has better scenery than the combination of trees, water, and mountains that the Pacific Northwest offers. Maybe you could say the same thing for maybe Oregon, or I'm sorry, for, for Maine maybe. maybe. Maybe Maine has that too as well. It's been some time since I've been over there. But, uh, you know, the weather. The weather's tough, and, uh, you know, we've been fortunate to have sunny weather, but uh, most of the year it's not sunny, and it's cloudy, and you get seasonal affective disorder, and, you know, vitamin D deficiency. And, so it's not always, places are not always what they, what they seem to appear to be. But don't get me wrong, it would be great to have like a house up here or something like that. But either way. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. You can find me on Instagram at naturopathic underscore earth. And please subscribe to our newsletter. I recently released an article on a review of non-sugar sweeteners and graded them. I know those are pretty popular with you guys on MP Radio. So I reviewed honey, molasses, stevia, and kind of gave them a, a grade to kind of give you a guideline, as there are ways to sweeten our food without using good old sugar. Good old sugar. So with confessions of an obese child now, we are we have passed the obese years, and now we're talking about how my obesity affected my skinnier years. As I mentioned in the previous confessions, dealing with my f- first kiss, my first year of uh, being skinny or skinnier, which was my senior year in high school, I talked about how I felt like a fat, skinny person. I was a skinny person or skinnier person, but I felt still like a fat person where I felt like I was a sham that, that I didn't want anyone to touch me, even though I started having some experiences with girls. It felt like it was, well, first of all, it wasn't going to last. And secondly, I just felt like uh, I was just a fraud. And it continued into college. And college is when I really started developing. Uh, the eating disorders. Because I, as I had mentioned before, and any of you who've lost your weight can relate to this, the chances of you maintaining your weight and keeping it off is something like five percent after three years. I can get those numbers wrong, but it's, it's, it's very difficult. And so when you've, when you've seen the promised land, if you grew up your entire life overweight and ridiculed and derided and having no concept or thought of having any interaction with the opposite sex or having I guess maybe a normal social life where you're just not sitting at home eating and watching movies all day. When you've, when you've caught a glimpse of that, you're petrified that you're going to go back. And so it's only natural that you start developing unhealthy eating habits because you already had unhealthy eating habits in the first place because that's how you became overweight. Right? I think most people who become overweight have a bad relationship with food. And I, as I mentioned way back in the first episode of which was Why Did I Become Fat, I had an alcoholic father and an emotionally distant mother and I think those two things fueled my eating probably with other factors as well. And so growing up, as I mentioned in all the different confessions, I you know would binge eat and hide the food. Though My parents had to lock food in a cabinet, which was episode 8, and I tried to break into it. I felt food was talking to me. And despite the fact that my weight burgeoned and I had to wear ugly clothes and constant ridicule and having my clothes stolen at the swimming pool and at the, at the amusement park and at the gym class – I loved food more than I loved myself, and I continued that. So in some ways, it it makes sense. Like, why would things change? Just because I lost my weight doesn't mean like, oh, I have a normal relationship with food. Of course I did. But I had to develop some sort of system to keep me, I guess, even-keeled. And so when it came to college, and I mentioned my senior year in the last kiss, I mentioned during my senior year, I still ate poorly, but I was exercising a lot. But I just didn't, at least I don't recall binge eating as much. So I was still eating my Dairy Queen blizzards. I love those blizzards and hamburgers, but I just wasn't eating four of them and you know three Big Macs and two gallons of ice cream and all the the, the nonsense, the inordinate amount of food I used to eat when I was in high school. But in college, being away from my family, because that's I went to college in San Antonio. I grew up in Houston. I had to devise some sort of routine. And so the routine that I came up with was when I was losing my weight, in the, the year that I. I I was in high school, the senior year, I would weigh myself every Friday because I thought that was a way to maintain. And I never weighed myself more than that. I think even then I knew it was kind of unhealthy to play with the mind, so to speak, to to weigh yourself daily. And I know some people do that, but I, I really don't recommend it. So I continued to weigh myself weekly. So what, what I would do essentially was weigh myself on Fridays and I would eat an inordinate amount of food over the weekend. And so typically in college, what I would do is on Friday evening, I would run every day at, at the club and I wouldn't run outdoors because it was weird. It was like, I didn't want people seeing me run in in college. Like it was like a little track, a little sidewalk track. And I was embarrassed to run. It's not like I was running shirtless and my blue and my, my fat was, uh, you know, jumping up and down, but I wouldn't run in public and I don't know why. So I'd go to the gym, but Either on Fridays I would steam, 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 steam. I'd weigh myself at the gym, and then boom, Friday night binge eat time. Either I'd go out with my friends, or I'd eat alone, and just two pizzas, you know, or, or several hamburgers and fries and cookies and cakes. And then Saturday morning I'd be I'd, I'd wake up early because I always wake up early even now as an adult. I'd wake up right when the cafeteria opened up. Boom, I'd get. Tons of eggs and pastries. I'd even eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream for breakfast. Just, you know, again, a lot of food, a lot of food, a lot of food. I'd eat that around 9, 10 o'clock. Of course, watch TV, do whatever I was doing. Then I'd eat a big lunch. Then again, Saturday night, big dinner. Sunday morning, a lot of eggs again, eggs and bagels and ice cream. And then starting about Sunday night, then I would start, I would start changing. I would start morphing. I would start morphing and then during the week now on Saturday and Sunday I would go running now this time I was running at I was at I belonged to a, a gym called presidential fitness and they had this indoor gym and it was one of those places that you guys could relate to where they have an indoor track but the place is really small so it's like you've got to run this this lap of this circle twenty-six times to equal a mile. So as soon as you're like on a straightaway, boom, you gotta turn, boom, you gotta turn, boom, you gotta turn, got turn. And so it was one of those places where uh it was upstairs where you were running and other people were running and there was like no space, no space at all. But even on Saturdays and Sundays, I'd have a belly ache. I'd be sick as sick can be, but I would still run. But starting on Monday, it was I I had very weird eating habits. So Monday mornings I would eat bagels with like salad dressing. I still I, I still like that kind of combination though I don't eat bagels anymore but french fries I still love it with thousand island or ranch or blue cheese. So I'd eat a bunch of that in the morning and then I'd go to class and then I was one of those do-gooder types who wanted to get all my classes done by noon because it made sense. You know, like I could tell my students if you don't know I'm a high school teacher. I tell them, it's like, take all your classes in the morning. Don't be one of those where I want to sleep late and so say your, your first class is at 11 or 12 or 1 because it just kind of ruins your day. And I know not everyone's wired like that, but I was taking 8 a.m. classes, 9 a.m. classes. So you could get out of, out of your classes by noon and then you'd have the whole day to either work or just do nothing. It just opens up the day. Like Even as an adult, it's so difficult for me to leave the house by 11, Like just wake up and binge watch TV or something like that because I blink and it's like noon already and I I just don't like that feeling so then for lunch I would go to the cafeteria and during college I would watch soap operas I think I had mentioned this in a previous podcast and so I'd go into the one room where where it was like a, a snack room that had a big tv and I'd go in there and I was watching all my children or all my kids as we called it and so I just developed a bunch of friends. We'd all watch the soap operas together. And it was mostly girls, of course. So I was kind of this this freak deviation, why there'd be a boy there. It didn't really make too much sense. So a lot of the girls thought that it was very odd that there was a guy watching soap operas in there. But what I would eat for lunch was, I'd get like a big side order of rice, a big side order of mixed vegetables and a lot of bread. And then I would mix mayonnaise and mustard in the rice. And, and throw the, the vegetables in there and just eat all of that. Okay. And then uh, then I would take a nap and then I'd go running and I went with my friend Christina because she belonged to the same gym but she needed a ride. And so around four o'clock I'd wake up from this nap and then we'd go to Presidential Fitness. I'd run my five miles in that little, that little tight loop upstairs and then I'd come home and then I would eat one gram of fat Weight Watchers entrees. Those were very big in the 90s, and those were all frozen entrees that were literally one gram of fat. Now, at the time, I didn't look at the sugar content. And then I would eat snack wells, which were fat-free cookies, and I would eat uh, Weight Watchers crackers. So, and, and, and the reason for this is back then, it was that paradigm where fat made you fat. And so you wanted to eliminate fat as much as possible. But what are they going to put in that food to give it some modicum of taste. They're going to have to put in sugar to make it taste good. And so I was in a very high carbohydrate low fat uh, diet for several years, at least the four or five years in college. And that was my routine. I would eat that then I'd go to the library or whatnot. But one of the things that I noticed during that time that I didn't even make a connection to was that I developed really, really bad acne. Really bad acne. And I didn't have acne in uh, in high school. I didn't. I, I have those few yearbook pictures, and I just remember I, I didn't have any acne. I had pretty good skin, and even at this point, I was shaving, and lots of times with men, you know, if you shave with a bad razor, it can irritate your skin. But I didn't have this. But I had really bad acne, and looking back at it, it was because I had I had a uh, I was malnourished. I had a dietary imbalance where the the carbs and the sugar were causing my skin to flare up and I remember listening to Dr. Lo who's a famous naturopath doctor she has a podcast and she had skin issues and I remember she she was retelling a story how she went to a dermatologist and asked the dermatologist you know is there any connection between nutrition and having bad skin and the dermatologist said no and I think it was from there she embarked on her journey to be a naturopath because even then she thought that was nonsense because back in the 90s the, the the treatment for acne was accutane right if you guys remember that drug accutane you could take some steroids too but you would take accutane and accutane i still remember i mean there were on the inserts it said on the inserts it said if you conceive a child when you're on accutane it's going to have birth defects do not get pregnant and then you had to check your, have your blood checked to make sure your liver wasn't failing too. I mean, it was a horrible drug, but I mean, there are definitely connections between that, and it just, and I know I don't have the studies in front of me. A lot of it's anecdotal, but I know that the higher fat diet you have, your skin is much clearer because a lot of it has to do with the hormones. A lot of it has to do with hormones, and hormones are built from cholesterol and fat. And so I had really bad acne. And I remember I was quote unquote dating girls in college. And I really, and I'll talk about this at the end. I really wasn't dating girls, it was just more like making out with female friends. But I remember one of them dumped me because I had really bad acne. She couldn't even look at me in the face. And I had really dry skin too. And I would like, and this, this goes back to the invisible student too, the episode three when I was talking about having panic attacks. In classes, and part of the reasons I had panic attacks is because I had really bad skin and dry skin and what would happen is I'd splash water or maybe put some lotion on it and look in the mirror and it'd be fine but then 20 minutes later once the water dried up I'd look in the mirror and I would have this horrible skin not just the acne but the dry skin because eventually the acne dissipated but I would still have really really dry skin and so it was difficult for me because I was very self-conscious about, about the skin as well. I had this very dry skin. And one of the issues was that I've always had psoriasis, which is an autoimmune, autoimmune skin disorder. And I never really had it on the face. It was more on my knees and, and my ankles, around the, the malleoli, the balls down there on your ankles. That's where I mostly had it. I never really had it on my face. But uh, I always had problems with that. And so for many, many years, just to go on a side tangent, I would use baby oil, Baby oil really helped with my, my dry skin on the face. And now I do coconut oil. Coconut oil is great. But my point is that I, was, I had this imbalance in my diet. So I was, it was binge, 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 binge for the weekend. And then starve, 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 starve. And calorically speaking, I probably wasn't starving because, again, I was eating bagels for breakfast and a lot of, you know, of, of rice and, and peas and just weird eating. Like where was the protein? no protein. And it wasn't like I was some avowed vegetarian, because back then vegetarianism was not big at all in the early, mid-90s. But I wasn't getting any meat. I was eating breads for breakfast, rice and veggies for lunch. And then at night, I was eating these entrees, which you know, might have like, like sesame chicken with rice, you know, whatever, whatever one gram of fat. And then you start thinking, it's like, what kind of meat if, we're, I don't even remember if there was meat, but what kind of meat are you getting in a, in a Weight Watchers one gram of fat when meat itself has a lot of fat, right? So I, I, I was definitely not getting enough fat and I was not getting enough protein for five days. So during those five days, I would run and run and run, calorie in, calorie out, right? I was eating a lot of calories, especially on the weekends, but I was trying to burn it as much as I can with the run. And so it was not healthy at all. I just remember eating like a lot of jello at night with my one gram of fat cookies. And I, I still... I still had binge eating issues. I remember I had a roommate who was from the Netherlands, Yusuf, Joseph. And I remember we had we had to go to roommate mediation because what I would do is I would go through his refrigerator. You know, when you had a roommate, you'd each have your little fridge or maybe you'd share a fridge. And he would have a refrigerator, and I would go in and eat his, ja- his jam, his strawberry jam. And it was the same thing. You're, I was still fixated on food like I was when I was a, a child and an adolescent. You know, I wasn't whispering. Food wasn't whispering to me, but I would think about it all the time. And so sometimes I would just, like, during the week when I was essentially starving myself and eating just crap with no taste, then I would just go in and grab his jam and eat the entire jam. And it wasn't like Smucker's jam. He had this really great, like... <laughs> imported from the Netherlands jam. And he'd get furious. He'd be like, Albert, why are you eating my jam? And it got to the point where we had to go to mediation, roommate mediation, because I was eating all of his food. And I'm sure at the time I was apologizing for it, but I couldn't stop because I was withholding myself. And you know, if anything, anytime you withhold yourself, you just build up all this pressure, 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 right? It's like binge eating, right? And then as soon as you eat, oh, there's a release, there's a release. And then boom guilt kicks in. Why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? And I'm not talking really about Yusuf's Jam, but the cycle of binge eating that all of you can relate to if you're listening to this. You fixate on the food. You fixate. You know, you're, you're moving your leg up and down. You're moving your... You're, you're tapping your nails like this. You know, you just can't stop thinking about it. You need it. You need it. And then you start rationalizing in your head. Well, if I binge eat now, you know, if I eat all these cookies or donuts, I can go work out or I can go walk or you know, it's okay. I ate pretty well yesterday. Just any excuse to eat, right? Any excuse. And then boom, you eat it. Just scarf down all the food. Just ingest, ingest, ingest as much as you can. You're not even waiting for cues from your stomach that you're full. You're just eating, 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 like in five minutes. 10 minutes, you're just scarfing all the food down. And then, of course, you feel like you feel like crap, right? Because your tummy hurts, especially... And I noticed this too back in my college and then graduate school years. And I'll talk about my graduate school years in the next podcast. But I, if I didn't drink water while I was binging, I could eat a lot more. But as soon as I drank water, oh, my stomach would kill me. I'd have to lie on my belly. Oh, I would have to walk. I mean, I had to come up with these little ways to sit and stand because my stomach would ache but i could literally eat like five big macs and four large fries and gallons of ice cream and i mean now at 43 there's no way i could do it i mean i get full really fast but back in the day i guess i was my stomach was much more flexible in the good old days but i would be able to eat 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 eat, and it wouldn't hurt but as soon as i drank some water boom the pain would kick in the pain would totally kick in but either way, you would eat all this food and then you'd feel like crap because you, you'd feel queasy. Even if your stomach didn't hurt, you know, the, the blood sugar would spike. And just it, just like uh, Morgan Sparlock's uh, uh, Super Size Me. If you watch the, the, the video or the, the the documentary where he eats McDonald's for 30 days, you kind of feel crappy after you eat. The beginning, it all tastes good, and then you feel crappy and crappy. And... Then, of course, the shame kicks in. Like, oh, my God, I just probably ate 4,000 calories. Now what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to starve the next three days. I'm going to have to do this and this and this. You're a horrible person. You, What what, what are you doing to your body? You hate yourself. And, and, and of course, this affects your relationships too. And then you would starve for four more days. But then you really wouldn't because two days later you'd be doing it again. And, it can, and then again, you can see why, why bulimia is so common because really for me I was not a a. a Perjurer. I didn't vomit, but I was an exercise. Like they they got they like non-binging bulimics. And so you a lot of them would use diuretics or laxatives or they'd exercise or drink lots of water. And so I would, uh, for me, it was exercise. And, and it's not like I was like running 20 miles a day. It was just five miles. But somehow I was able to maintain my weight in my college years despite this Binge on the weekend, starve during the week, uh, kind of routine that I did forever. So it was it was weird. Now on the social aspects, this did affect my 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 social life. So I mentioned in the popular brother, I believe it was in the popular brother episode, where my brother was very popular and he was in a fraternity, and so I did not go to the same university he did, but uh, the the. He had a friend in his fraternity who had a brother in the university I was at who was in the very popular fraternity. And so I was asked to pledge. And I said no because I didn't feel like I fit in with the popular, good-looking, rich boys. Even though on every kind of standard, I would fit in because my father was a famous doctor. And I I would have fit in. But I said no, no, no. And so what I did was, I turned to campus ministry as kind of my uh, my group of friends. So I went from like turning on the frats, and I never went to any frat parties. I didn't go to one college party, guys, in four years of college. I was scared. I was scared to go to the frat parties. I was scared that if I walk in, they say, you don't belong, get out of here, fatty. Even though I knew objectively I wasn't fat. And it's hard to explain, but again, I still felt like the fat nerd. But I needed a social outlet, so I went to campus ministry. So campus ministry is a as a department in a lot of schools, a lot of universities, especially Catholic ones, where it's like a volunteer service, like a volunteer outreach. And uh, you can either, they would have different programs, but they would definitely have religious retreats where you would go to retreats with people that were like-minded. There was a lot of praying, Bible studies. And then through that outreach, you would do after-school tutoring, or you would go to the prison, or go to the jail, attend to the homeless people, and so forth. And so I joined campus ministry, and I think that was just kind of like a compensation and a buffer for not really fitting in, because at the school I went to, it's either you were a Greek or you were nothing. I mean, all the social life revolved around the Greeks. And so I joined campus ministry, which really wasn't that good of a fit, because even though I was a practicing Catholic, the the people that were in campus ministry were dealing with their own issues, and they used religion kind of as a shield. And at the time, I don't know if I noticed it, but in retrospect, I, I certainly did. A lot of people use religion as a shield. So let's say um, you're a girl, and You know, you were sexually assaulted in high school or perhaps something happened to you in your childhood. And so you go to campus ministry and you use religion and praying and campus outreach as just a means to stay away from boys and stay away from the Greeks. Or you were an outcast. Campus ministry was largely a group of outcast people who kind of went through the same thing we did. Like we didn't know where to fit in. Um, Either we were just really socially awkward or we were unattractive and the frats, we didn't feel like they would accept us. And so we would go to campus ministry. So it was like a collection of, of kind of nerd, socially awkward people, and then a lot of religious mania. I re- I remember having colleagues or friends that were in campus ministry that would just be walking down the, the sidewalk and all of a sudden just fall on their knees and start praying and looking at the clouds and the sun and saying Jesus was talking to them. So it was a weird collection of people. And so because my... My social interaction was largely through them. I dated girls that were in campus ministry at the time or girls that I would meet in class but uh it really didn't fit me it, it really it really didn't fit and even even in the retreats i was i remember leaving retreats campus retreats they'd have like a spring retreat a fall retreat where we'd go to some camp you know an hour or two outside of san antonio and i remember even there i would i would leave in the middle of the night and have panic attacks and because i didn't feel i could fit in or somebody said something to me that i took the wrong way and so i would leave so it, 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 even then it was just weird and and in college, as I mentioned, I didn't I didn't have a girlfriend. I just made out with a lot of girls that just happened to be my friends because I didn't really have any game. I didn't know how to approach girls and didn't know how to talk to girls because I didn't have that time in my formative adolescent years really to do so. And I think for many years I was very socially awkward and I would tell people, I would tell female friends or whoever, it's like you gotta understand I didn't have that normal psychosexual development that a lot of people have starting in their tween years or even earlier in their elementary school years where they're talking to girls. And then they, they in middle school, started going to the dances and had their first kiss. And then you started dating in high school. I didn't have any of that. So I was just like not talking to girls pretty much uh, my whole adolescence. And you can listen to the podcast called The Opposite Sex about it. And then, boom, I'm I'm thrusted in and I'm talking to a bunch of girls. and But I didn't know what to say. It, I didn't have any of that normal development so I would be very blunt or say really weird things and, and a lot of girls are just like you're odd you know and I, and looking back I could totally understand that but I didn't scam back we, we would use the term scam out you know you would scam, I would scam with some girls but just you know just make just messing around making out and so forth and uh it it was I think I think it was difficult for me to sustain any sort of relationship during this time because of, of the eating and the way I viewed myself. Yeah. I still had the black zones that I mentioned in the previous podcast where my body was delineated into white zones, black zones, grey zones. So the white zone were essentially my, my forearms, hands and face. And then gray zones were anything closer to the trunk, and then my entire trunk was a black zone. So if I was making out with the girl, I was like, you can't touch that, don't touch it. And you certainly couldn't put your hand on my abdomen or on my chest, you know, or my thighs. It's was like, no way. I was literally like slapping hands away. And I mean, if I could interview these girls now, they must have thought I was a weirdo. I was like one of those virgin girls where a guy's trying to make a move and they're slapping their hands when you're trying to reach their breasts or whatnot. And so it, it must have been so peculiar, but again, I was not comfortable with my body. I was not comfortable with my body. I was very cognizant of my bloopy, which was my abdomen fat drape that would what would sling down uh six or seven inches from my body, like if I was like doing a push up in that position. I was very conscious of this uh, and of course, I would never take off my shirt in public, and I was just it was just a very awkward time. But during, during the end of this time is when I met my my, my ex-wife. So I started dating my ex-wife in uh, the senior year of college. And you know we, we got along pretty well. And uh, I guess we became committed at the very end of my senior year. So the four years that I was in college, I did not have a girlfriend. I had those two girlfriends in high school that I mentioned. And then I didn't date... Uh, anybody's, and I, looking back, I don't know why, because I couldn't sustain a relationship or I just didn't know how to make a move. But eventually, uh, this woman had pity on me and we started dating. And I remember one of the, the, the talks is I remember sitting with her in the front of the dormitory and I stayed in, I stayed in the campus ministry dormitory too. So, uh, that kind of gives you an idea. They had curfews and everything, but it was a co-ed dorm where the, the boys were on one side and the girls were on the other. And uh and it, it wasn't like very regulated. I mean, it certainly wasn't how it is now at a lot of public universities where boys and girls can be roommates or they're sharing co-ed showers and bathrooms. It wasn't like that. But I mean you could definitely move back and forth among the, the sides of the dorm. But I remember sitting with with her in the front, I was like, I, I have something very important to tell you. It's very serious and I was like all nervous and sweating and she she told me later on, you know, she thought I was gonna say that I had like cancer or I was some like sex offender or something like that. I was like I have an eating disorder. I've always had an eating disorder. I binge eat, da 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 And at the time, when I told her, she was like, that's it? That's all it was? But later on, and we'll talk about this in, in the next podcast, being married or being with somebody with an eating disorder is very taxing on the relationship. It's very, very taxing. It really is. And I'll mention that in the next podcast. The last thing I want to mention was I did lose my virginity in college. I was it was at the cusp of my twenty first birthday, so maybe two months from the twenty first birthday, I did lose my virginity. So I had my first kiss uh, when I was right after I lost my weight. So I was maybe eighteen, maybe close to close to turning eighteen. And which is late. Of course, most people have their first kiss. You know, some people have it in second grade, but I guess you really don't count those unless it's you're in a really kind of weird relationship. But I think most people consider their first kisses maybe in junior high. But I had my first kiss when I was close to 18, and then I didn't lose my virginity until I was close to 21. And one of the reasons was I had this very romantic notion of relationships. And at the time, between 17 and 21, I think some of those those girls that I was just making out with, some of them just didn't want to have sex because they were virgins. And some of it, too, was I didn't want to lose my virginity unless it was with somebody that I was in love with. Now, I know this sounds so, like, un-guy-like, right? Because guys just want to lose their virginity as soon as they can and just have as many conquests as possible. But I distinctly remember, and I'm not saying this to make myself look good, because in a lot of these episodes, I don't make myself look good at all. I come off pretty badly. But... I really, I guess I was watching too many rom-coms with Meg Ryan at the time, but I really wanted to have a relationship and have sex or make love for the first time. And I feel bad for the the, the kids nowadays because we live in this Tinder world, right? Where, and I explain this to the students in sex ed. Back in the day, like in my time or before that, you had to date a girl and you had to put in your time, so to speak, it could be a month, two months, six months, a year. Until the girl felt comfortable to have sex, and and and, and then you guys would have sex. But by then, you would get to know each other, and you kind of knew each other's quirks. And then you could end the relationship if if either of you ended up being psycho, or you saw some traits that you didn't think were that healthy. But with the Tinder world that the kids grow up nowadays, it's the opposite. I mean, they literally have apps for you just to have sex, grinder Tinder, and so you have sex, and then that bonds you because of the oxytocin, the dopamine that's released, the endorphins. And so the rest of the relationship, you are hooked on sex. You're having sex a lot. And then you're getting to know the person at the same time. And so at that point, you might see tons of red flags. This person's controlling. This person's possessive. This person's bipolar. This person, You know, whatever it is. But at that point, you're so hooked on the sex because of all the, the hormones that are brain release. You kind of push it aside like, oh, it's okay. Or this person's really good looking or really hot. Or maybe they're in a phase. And so... Lots of people get engaged or even married during this phase. And then one day you wake up, you're like, oh, my God, this person's mentally ill or they're, they're, we're not compatible. And so that's why it's really important to put in the time. Because when you're putting in the time, uh, you can see a lot of the red flags that, that you would not see if you just had sex very quickly on and then try to have a relationship after that. But the funny thing about losing my virginity was was the girl at the time was, was a, a bisexual. She had dated guys, but during the phase, she was a lesbian. And she was a friend of a friend at school, and she was in Houston. So my friend that I went to, to school with was from Houston. And so I guess I went to Houston one weekend, and I met her friend. And I guess we just hit it off. But she listened to a lot of Tori Amos, so I guess no. That was like a red flag. If any of you know who Tori Amos was, Tori Amos was a very popular. I wouldn't say very popular, but she had some some big hits in the in the early to mid '90s, and she played a lot of piano. She had red hair. Silent all these years was her her big hit that came out in '91. But she uh, very her songs are were very very. Uh, powerful, a lot of sex references and she was raped. So yeah, she had a song about rape and and so yeah, looking back the fact that this girl is in Tori Amos should have been a total red flag that she was a little up and down and but uh, yeah, I I, if, I I recall in my last podcast I mentioned how my first kiss was not the best thing because it was like a, a lot of teeth clashing because I didn't know how to like move my face and slow down and just be a bit lip, lips on lips. So it was a lot of teeth crashing. My first experience with sex, uh, I'm sure I liked it. You know, this was 20-something years ago, but, um, yeah. You I I probably won't get too graphic on this, but just know that she was a lesbian, or at the time she was bisexual, and then I I don't know what. uh, Later on, you know, we did talk, and then we just stopped talking. I think she had a boyfriend at the time. I honestly don't remember now maybe she had a boyfriend after the fact but it was just one of those hookups kind of thing and the ones I was just just recently uh lamenting but I I think at the time I was very upset that it it ended because I wanted my my first time to be with somebody I love but that's right I wanted to be with somebody I love but I reached a certain point where I felt that it was embarrassing that I was still a virgin and it's not like I was broadcasting it to the entire world. Hey, I'm a, you know, virgin I'm almost at 21. But I reached a point where I was like, I just need to, I just need to have sex. I can't be a virgin. This is embarrassing. Was, it's not like I was Steve Carell and the 40-year-old virgin, but even then I was cognizant that being a virgin at 21 was kind of embarrassing. So with this girl, did I love her? I probably not. You know, she was somebody that I got along with to a certain extent and we liked Tori Amos and and, you know, we, we, I guess we're sexually compatible, but I, 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 don't remember it like lasting, uh, or planning to last that long, but yeah. And it just ended. Yeah. You know, that, and that's really all I remember about it. And I know, I know a lot of people do not lose their virginity until 20 or 30. And, and I was on, on, on one level, very lucky that I was able to lose my virginity at 21 or close to 21. Cause I, I, when I was overweight, I literally thought I was never going to have sex and then I would be a virgin forever. And, and, and it's somewhat, you know, looking down on that because here's the thing is that anyone can get married. Anyone can have relationships. Overweight people, of course, can, can get married and have relationships and they certainly do. But I, I guess at the time I was thinking like, well, I was fat and overweight and I would never find a girl. Not maybe thinking that I could find an, an, another overweight girl that we could have a very good relationship. You know, why is that so anathema? Why is that so hard to believe? And is it because overweight people want to date regular weight people? If they had the choice? I mean, this would be a very honest conversation to have in an interview, which hopefully is forthcoming. I mean, overweight people, do they ideally want to date regular-sized people? And if that's the case, I mean, isn't that kind of contradictory and hypocritical? But certainly, you could be morbidly overweight and have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Uh, but at the time, I thought I was never going to, so uh, when I was overweight. So I am aware that some people never have sex or never or, or remain virgins their entire lives. So, but I can only really speak about my experience. So I did lose my virginity at 21. So. Those are just some of the experiences that I had in college. I essentially had very weird eating habits that continued into my graduate school years and into my 20s and 30s, which I'll talk about in the next episode. In the next episode, it's really going to focus on how eating disorders and how you view your body affect uh, long-term relationships. And so we'll talk about my relationship uh, with my ex-wife and how it affected our relationship throughout the years. So... Please uh, forward these podcasts to other people that you know that you think that might find it interesting, especially people who grew up overweight or who are currently overweight. Or forward it to anybody. Please listen to, to Kate's uh, podcast, which is Kate's Apothecary. And uh, until next time, take care. God bless. And please contact me through social media and let me know if there's anything that you want, you'd like me to talk about or, or anything similar to that. Okay? Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at NaturopathEarth. See you next time.